If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you enjoy this podcast, then we have a very special subscription offer for you. You can receive a copy of the brand new book, Agent Sonia, by Ben McIntyre, when you subscribe to BBC History Magazine or History Revealed from just $19.99. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash Sonia and choose which magazine you'd prefer. Your copy of Agent Sonia and your magazine subscription will be delivered direct to your door. Remember, that's buysubscription.com forward slash Sonia to take out this special offer. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your copy of Agent Sonia within the next 28 days. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got an interview with the journalist and author Ben McIntyre, who's written a number of hugely popular books on 20th century spies, including Agent Zigzag, The Spy and the Traitor, and Double Cross. His latest book, published just yesterday, is Agent Sonia, which tells the incredible story of a woman who spied for the Soviet Union during World War II and the Cold War, changing the course of history in the process. He spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. What was it about Ursula's life that made you want to write her biography? Well, Ursula is different from any spy that I've come across before in one obvious way and, and several less obvious ways. I mean, Without too much exaggeration, she is the most successful, was the most successful woman spy of the 20th century. Now, by that, I don't mean, you know, there are lots of, of, of women agents, there are lots of women informants, there are the great SOE heroines of the war and so on. But, but Ursula was different in that she was a trained Soviet military intelligence officer. So she was, she was a professional. And she, you know... <laughs> in a world absolutely dominated by men, she used her gender as a completely brilliant disguise in lots of ways. I mean, she was she was invisible, not just to sort of MI5, who, who failed to catch her, and this is getting way ahead of the story, but, 
But really, in a way, in each of the places that she spied during his very, very long career, the fact that she was a housewife and a mother and meant that that she was she it was the perfect disguise in lots of ways. And she was she was brilliant at it. She was a proper professional in the sense that, you know, she was she was also a yeah. really expert technician. I mean, she knew how to run radio, um, shortwave radio in a way that was extraordinary for her time. I mean, she'd been properly trained. So so there's that aspect of her. I mean, the other thing that I think makes her very different is that, you know, she was she was 13 when the Bolshevik Revolution happened and she was in her 90s when the Berlin Wall came down. So her life spans the whole of communism, you know, she, from, from childhood into, into, into old age. And, and trying to sort of trace her ideological progression was, was, was part of the sort of, was part of the pleasure of writing this book, really. And so if we come to the start of that progression... I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about her early life and what actually draws her to communism in the first place. Ursula grew up in the tumult of the Weimar Republic, the, the chaos that descended uh, on, on, on Germany after the, after the First World War. And she witnessed things on the streets of Berlin, human degradation, the vast chasm between rich and poor. And it was a time of swirling ideological ferment. The, the, obviously, the fascism was on the march on the right, but communism, we often forget this, was was really marching on the left. And, and for someone like us, who'd have brought up in a left-wing, sort of what might be termed a sort of haute bourgeois family, her father was a kind of prominent left-wing academic. In a way, communism for her was a completely logical, logical, ideological home to take up. And she, she joined the Communist Party at the age of, of 18 and never left it. It was absolutely a point of belief for her. And it seems odd to us now because we all know what happened in Germany in the 1930s, the terrible rise of Nazism. But for many people, particularly young people like Ursula, the revolution seemed inevitable. It seemed absolutely part of history that there was going to be a revolution in Germany. It was going to follow Russia. That was what was going to happen. And and I think, you know, it, you know, it, the battle between left and right in Germany is often forgotten because we sort of assume that the rise of Nazism was somehow inevitable. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, and for someone like Ursula, that was that was that was her home. That was her ideological home. Now, many people were attracted to communism at this point, as as you've detailed, but not that many of them then became spies. So, what was it about Ursula that drew her to this world of espionage? Well, that's a really good question because I mean that is not an ideological question in some ways. That's a question of character. I mean, was Ursula naturally a secretive person? I don't think she was really. I think, I think she thrilled to the adventure of espionage, as many do. I think she became addicted to the secrecy, which again is a kind of common thread often in these stories. Um, so in her case, it's a combination of personality and opportunity. And in a way, the people that she met in the course of her life. I mean, she... As this young, dedicated communist, she and her husband Rudolf Hamburger set sail for set sail went by train to uh, to to Shanghai, and that was kind of fortuitous, really. I mean, Shanghai was a, a complicated, fascinating city at that point in the in the in the late twenties and nineteen thirties. It was a sort of boiling commercial centre, but it also had a sort of huge gulf between rich and poor. Um, she went there really because her husband got a job as an architect working for the British Municipal Council in Shanghai. But she arrived there and she 
as a young communist, observed this kind of fantastic brewing battle that was about to take place between the sort of communist underground and the nationalist, right-wing nationalist government of China. And she was recruited. I mean, it's as simple as that. That's often what happens in these stories. She met a woman called Agnes Smedley, who was a, at that point a very, now forgotten largely, but was a very well-known left-wing American writer, a novelist. Um, I mean, Agnes Smedley was a household name in, in, in America, but she had come to Shanghai to sort of to, to sort of start anew, really. But she'd, she herself, Agnes, had already been recruited by Soviet intelligence, and she in turn recruited Ursula and passed her on to the most important figure in Ursula's life, really, this man Richard Sorga, who, who really was her first love, but he was also her recruiter. And coming on to Sorga, he, as you say, is, is one of the best-known spies, perhaps, of the 20th century. Did coming to his story through Ursula give you a new perspective on him? Oh, I think completely, yes. I mean, Sorga is known. He's still a kind of slightly mysterious figure. Um, he is, as you say, I mean, Ian Fleming described him as the most formidable spy in history. And that's a, that's not an exaggerated claim. I mean, Sorga was an extraordinary man. I mean, he'd fought in the First World War. He'd been badly injured in the First World War. He emerged, as many did from the First World War, utterly committed to communism. Sorga was recruited by Soviet military intelligence. Uh, he was sent to Shanghai. He began to set up a, a network of spies in this kind of roiling kind of strange atmosphere in Shanghai. And he would go on to many years later to, to Japan, where he would play a vital part in providing Stalin and Stalin's sort of spy masters with crucial information from the heart of the, of the sort of of, of Japanese, of the Japanese court and the Japanese government. So he played a very important part and would eventually be executed by the Japanese. Um, but he was hugely successful and also extremely seductive. I mean, his string of of conquests, as he would put it, was, was as long as your arm. And, and Ursula was one of those. I mean, her story began, as so many of these stories do, with a kind of emotional engagement with, with the story. I mean, Sorga was a, was a, was a veteran womanizer. And so when she's when Ursula's in China, what does being a spy entail? Is she following people round? Is she decoding messages? What's she actually doing? Well, initially, Zorga puts her to work, um, having sort of tested her, really, having tested her ideological commitment. He puts her to work, effectively running what we would now call a safe house. I mean, her apartment became a meeting spot for Sorga to meet his communist agents that were being deployed really throughout the city. So initially, she's really just a sort of housekeeper. But as time goes on, and as her relationship with Sorga deepened into, into a romantic uh, attachment and her marriage began to crumble, um, she was given more and more responsibility. I mean, she began, you know, uh, Sorga used her to look after all the documents, really, that were used to run the network. She, she looked after the arsenal. I mean, guns, bombs... So on. I mean, one has to bear in mind this was it wasn't just a kind of intelligence gathering operation. This it was also you know Sorga was financing and arming and equipping really what was effectively a, a sort of underground army, and it was unbelievably dangerous. I mean, the chances of being caught were extremely high. The nationalist government had spies absolutely everywhere and was ruthless. They were also in league with the criminal gangs that ran so much of Shanghai. I mean, if Ursula had been caught, there's absolutely no doubt that she would simply have been executed. She probably wouldn't even have had any form of recourse to the law. So 
what she was doing was hugely dangerous. And to go back to your earlier question, danger is addictive. Danger has its own drug, you know. And even though she was now the mother of a small child, even though she was, she appeared to all outward appearances to be a sort of ordinary German housefrau, she was anything but. And I think that kind of contrast between her secret life and what you might term her sort of outward life was, again, one of the motors that ran the woman who became known as Agent Sonia. I mean, Sonia was the code name bestowed on her by Richard Sorger, but it contained a kind of romantic message because there was a there was a song that in the nightclubs at that point um, in Shanghai, which was all about a Russian man falling in love with a girl called Sonia. So by giving her that code name, Sorger was deliberately also sending her a romantic message about the evenings they'd spent listening to the jazz in, in the extraordinary seedy glamour of Shanghai. And as you've already alluded to, Ursula had quite an unconventional love life. She had, as the book details, three children by three different fathers. I mean, I guess this must have been quite uncommon at the time, but was this part and parcel of just being a spy? No, I think it was part and parcel of her personality, actually. I mean, she was completely unashamed of her as you say, extremely unconventional love life. But then her, the rest of her life was also pretty unconventional. I mean, Ursula was, was a pioneer in all sorts of ways. I mean, intriguingly enough, when she wrote her many, many, many years later, and this is to skip forward in the story, when she wrote her memoir, um, it was done under the Stasi auspices. I mean, the, the East German secret police were all over it. And um, when she wrote about, you know, the different lovers that she'd had and the different children she'd had by different people. The Stasi, being a slightly prudish organisation, said, well, you can't write this. This is, this is incredibly, you know, this is immoral what you are up to. And, and so they tried to censor bits of her manuscript. I've seen the original in the Stasi archive. And she basically told them to, to get stuffed and, and said, I, you know, this is my life. I'm extremely, I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. So she was one of those women who who kind of lived very passionately. I think though she was incredibly dedicated and very organised and super efficient, she also, her heart was a was a big one. And she fell in love. She fell serially in love. You know, Sorge disappeared. And again, you know, life of a spy is very kind of, you know, it's very complicated. It, you know, she moved countries all the time. And so I think she felt that life was short and her life had every potential to be extremely short given that what she was up to. So she seized love where she found it. And having had as well, eventually three different children and, and her own family, did that make her take a second thought about being a spy with the risks she was putting to her family or did she just carry on regardless? Reading her private and unpublished and, and personal writings, it is quite clear that Ursula wrestled throughout her life with the twin demands on one hand of motherhood, being a wife, being a mother, trying to set up a home, trying to, particularly during wartime, trying to keep the whole machinery of a kind of domestic arrangement running. And on the other hand, the extremely perilous ideological commitment that she had to an underground world. And, and she, she, throughout her life, these two things are in constant tension. Whenever it comes to a battle between them, there's no doubt, really, which way she goes. And I think her children, particularly in later life, found this very difficult. I think they knew, though they admired her greatly for what she had done, and they were themselves, all of them, sort of left-wingers, one of them a committed communist, 
they looked at her life and, and did know, I think, that if it had ever come to a battle between, between protecting her children and defending the revolution, she would probably have opted for the latter. And as a child, I think that's one of them said to me years, years later, he was in his 90s, said, look, you know, um, he said of himself, he said, look, I've been married and divorced several times. He said, maybe that's because I never really learned to trust anybody. So there is a kind of psychological legacy here. And, and Ursula is complicated. She is not a straightforward heroine. I mean, if you're looking for a kind of female version of James Bond, that's not her. She's incredibly brave. She's astonishingly vital and she embraces adventure in a way that is, is magical. But does she butt up against our ideas of what motherhood and, and marriage are? Yes, she does. She's a challenge. She's, she's not a straightforward, one-dimensional cookie cutter. She just isn't. She's, she's, she's complicated. And, and then following her time in China, she came back to Europe and spent quite a number of years in Switzerland particularly around around wartime. And that just seemed to be a complete hotbed of spies. Why was it such a, a, a magnet for espionage in around the war years? Well, Switzerland, like all neutral countries during the war, was a kind of seething hotbed of espionage. I mean, it's much easier to spy in a neutral country for obvious reasons. There is Switzerland, bang, smack in the middle of Europe, occupied and unoccupied. You know, it's on the borders with Germany. It's the obvious place to run a spy ring from. And the place was just lousy with them. I mean, everybody was running spies in, in, in Switzerland, the British, the Americans, the Swiss themselves, and the Soviet Union and the Germans. And it, there's a kind of, there's an undeclared spy war going on there. So having been trained in Moscow, been given really, really profound training in, in all sorts of espionage techniques, but most importantly in radio work, Ursula was dispatched to Switzerland with the with the task of running spies inside Nazi Germany. So the idea was that she was to recruit people, send them into Germany, this was before war was declared, and then use them to kind of extract important military information and carry out sabotage operations inside Germany. So she really became quite quickly the most important cog, if you like, in this huge Swiss operation. I mean, the Swiss story, the story of Swiss, particularly of Soviet espionage inside Switzerland, has been tackled many times, but, but because the Soviets have never fully released their archives, it's still partly unknown. And Ursula's role in it is, is almost completely unknown up until this. But, but again, if you had seen her in, in Switzerland in 1942, you would have seen what appeared to be a single mother with two young children living in a, in a, in a sort of farmhouse on the hills above Lake Geneva. I mean, the farmhouse itself has a wonderfully ironic name. It was called La Topinière, which which means the mole hill in 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 French. I mean, the term mole for a spy was not coined until the sixties. But to our ears, the fact that Ursula was living in a mole hill was 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 pretty ironic, really. And there she had her transmitter, and and you know she was playing a very important part. And and during the war years, how relevant was her Jewish background to her career? I mean, surely she was in even greater danger had the Nazis caught wind of her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as as a, a Jew living in Switzerland, and particularly in her case, because her passport, her German passport, was running out, she was extremely vulnerable. Had she been sent back to Germany, and she knew this, had she been deported back, she would have been murdered. I mean, she knew, she knew that. And the Gestapo and um, the, 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 the whole SS intelligence operation inside Switzerland was extremely sophisticated. I mean, uh, they're also in league in part with 
elements within the Swiss security service. So she knew that she was in extreme danger and and absolutely her her, her Jewish heritage was a real danger to her and played a very important part in, in, in her need to get out of Switzerland or, or the opportunity to get out if she needed to. And so when Ursula was in Switzerland, one of the perhaps most interesting parts of her story was an attempt actually on the life of Adolf Hitler. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes. I mean, in later life, Ursula always said that, you know, that she had never killed anybody. She'd never been involved in in kind of in the sort of really nasty end of espionage. And that was true. But there is one exception, which was the opportunity that arose to assassinate Hitler. And it's never been told before this story in, in its entirety. Ursula discovered through her agents in Germany, and this was before the outbreak of war, Um, She had two there, one her future husband, Len Burton, the other one, um, uh, Foote, uh, Alexander Foote, who was there. And Foote, who had been based in Munich, began having lunch in a particular restaurant called the Osteria Bavaria and discovered that it was Hitler's favourite restaurant and, and, and watched in sort of excitement as Hitler would turn up. Whenever he was in Munich, this is where Hitler would go and he'd process through the through the restaurant, and then he'd sit in a little private area at the back, divided by um, a sort of partition. And in one of his conversations with Ursula back in Switzerland, Foote, who was perhaps not absolutely the sharpest tool in the box, let drop that he had seen Hitler turning up, you know, regularly at this restaurant. And Ursula immediately contacted Moscow and said, this is a golden opportunity to kill the Fuhrer. And and so Ursula contacted Moscow and said, look, here's a here's an extraordinary opportunity to kill Hitler. And the plot began to evolve, somewhat to the horror of, of Alexander Foote, who was who was um an opportunist in many ways. And and while he didn't like Hitler, he had no intention of dying himself. And it would have probably had to be a suicide mission. But they planned to plant a bomb next to the partition, uh, wait for Hitler to come in and have his lunch. And indeed, they observed him over the course of several weeks. His, the patterns of his movements and noticed that, in fact, that the people surrounding him were, were pretty inattentive. I mean, at one point, Burton reached into his pocket as Hitler was walking through the restaurant, accompanied by Unity Mitford, um, the, the sort of the British acolyte that he had, and Ava Braun, his, 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 his mistress, walking through the restaurant. And at this point, then Burton reached into his pocket, in fact, to take out his cigarette case, but to Foote's sort of terrified eyes, it looked exactly as if he was about to pull a revolver. Um, But so far from any of the kind of um, Gestapo goons standing around doing anything about it, they just sort of watched idly um, as as he did it. But so seeing Hitler at this this proximity, they realised that there was a golden opportunity and it came very, very close to being being done, except what kiboshed it was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact to, to Ursula's horror the agreement between Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany not to attack each other, there would be a non-aggression pact, was a shattering blow to Ursula because it meant that the, you know, that the power, the, that the Nazi state that she'd been battling since her infancy was suddenly allied to her own country. And she was told, pull out, stop all the offensive operations, you know, no assassination, no... And that was the end of that, really. But it came very, very close... Uh, to being carried out and would obviously have been an astonishing change. Well, it would, have, it would have changed the course of history had it happened. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, it is one of the strange elements of Ursula's life is that her partners very rapidly became her recruits. 
Um, you know, it, was, it would have been impossible to be married to Ursula without becoming a communist spy. So <laughs> that's quite rare in marriages, I suspect. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And then from Switzerland, she ends up in Britain. Would you argue that this was the pinnacle of her espionage career? Yes. By this point, she is already a colonel in the Red Army Intelligence Unit. I mean, she looks like she looks like just another Jewish refugee, but she absolutely isn't. She's already received the Order of the Red Banner at a, at a ceremony in the Kremlin. I mean, she is she is heading. She is certainly by far the most important underground officer in, in, in Britain. I mean, there, there's an important distinction to be made here between legals and illegals. Those are the two terms in spycraft. Now, a legal is somebody with diplomatic cover, working within the embassy as a kind of, as a formal diplomat, but who is actually doing intelligence work. An illegal is, a, is a, what appears to be a private citizen who has no diplomatic immunity, but is simply there as a kind of deep penetration agent. That is what Ursula was sent to Britain to do. Um, and it's it's pretty remarkable the amount of faith that the that her Soviet spy masters put in her. I mean, she wasn't just a rare bird within Soviet intelligence. There were no other female intelligence officers that I've ever come across that were used for illegal work in this way. Uh, she was one of a kind. And how significant do you think her role was in the Soviet acquisition of the nuclear bomb? 
she plays an absolutely crucial role in the in the in the whole atomic um, weapons espionage story. She she when she arrived in Britain, um, it's the height of the war. Um, at this point, she's slightly in a kind of limbo because the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that 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 sort of allied didn't ally formally, but the non-aggression pact between um, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union was actually still in force by the time she got there. So she was kind of she wasn't really allowed to spy against the Germans, but she was certainly allowed to spy against everybody else. And it's ironic in a way that she was already, you know, the Cold War was was in prospect but uh, but she was more or less told you know you can spy as much as you like on the brits even though there are allies so she began gathering information but really her huge break came when klaus fuchs the who was another german refugee who was already a, a very distinguished really really rather brilliant physicist had already been recruited by britain's atomic weapons program the secret um, program to build an atomic weapon um, that had st- was starting in Britain would eventually move to the States, the centre of gravity would move to the States. And he was recruited into that, but he was also a committed communist. And Ursula, through her brother, uh, Jürgen Kaczynski, effectively became his spy runner. I mean, in concert with Klaus Fuchs, she sent back to Moscow a vast amount of information about the building of the bomb. I mean, it's we don't know exactly how much, but at times he was handing over entire blueprints of everything to her. She would hop on her bicycle uh, in her little um, place that she was living outside Oxford, little rural hamlet. She would cycle off into the countryside. In uh, There she would meet in Banbury with, with Klaus Fuchs, who was coming from... Um, Banbury was chosen because it was sort of midway between where he was working and where she was. They would walk through the fields arm in arm as if they were having a lover's tryst. And he would hand over this huge amount of material. And it was going really straight to Stalin's desk. I mean, it was considered so important in the Soviet Union that Stalin was, by the end of, of Ursula's time of running Klaus Fuchs, was sending a kind of shopping list of things that he wanted Fuchs to produce. And and really, I mean, there's no doubt that Fuchs really was the most important of the atom spies. And when, in 1949, the Soviets detonated their own bomb, to the astonishment of the West, the person responsible, really, largely responsible for doing that was Fuchs through through Agent Sonia, through, through Ursula Kaczynski. Did Ursula feel at all conflicted about spying on Britain, which, after all, was an ally of the Soviet Union and had offered refuge to her and many of her family. Well, this is why I think her her story is so fascinating and you can trace the development of communism through it. Yes, I think privately she certainly was troubled by this. She arrived in Britain as a refugee. Her family had been given um, safe haven from the Nazis there. Britain had looked after her. Britain, you know, she felt very British. She was British. She had, by this point through her second marriage to, to Len Burton, she had a British passport. Len Burton was another communist. He, he'd been a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. And he, you know, he she recruited him to spy in Switzerland. And then she married him in order to get a British passport. And then she fell in love with him. It's an extraordinary story. And they would remain married for the rest of their lives. But she was Mrs. Burton. She was a British citizen. He was also her sub-agent. I mean, it is one of the strange elements of Ursula's life is that her partner's very rapidly became her recruits. Um, you know, it was it would have been impossible to be married to Ursula without becoming a communist spy. 
So <laughs> that's quite rare in marriages, I suspect. But but Len was was her recruit. So you know, so as Mrs. Burton, she was a British citizen, and of course, this was fine at the point when. Britain and the Soviet Union during the war were on the same side, you know, although, you know, on the same side to an extent. I mean, Britain and America were developing the atomic bomb without telling Russia. Russia knew they were doing so thanks to people like Ursula. So there was already, even as the war was going on, that this there was a sort of conflict going on there. But when the war ends and the Cold War begins in earnest, Ursula is now spying against effectively her own country. Did she feel qualms about that? She always maintained that, you know, the revolution came first, that it was unfair that Britain and America were developing the atomic weapon without telling Moscow. Nominally, they were allied. They should have shared all of that. And she argued, I mean, this was a kind of ex post facto argument, but she she said, and she said this very clearly, and others have said it too, that had people like her and Fuchs not provided the Soviet Union with the atomic bomb, the balance of power that you can argue kept everybody weirdly safe during the Cold War would not have happened. There would have been one country, America, with a preponderant power to rule and dominate and arguably destroy the world. Would that have been a better world? I mean, <laughs> that's a kind of what if of history. But I mean, her argument was, and it's hard to argue it in a, in a way, was that, you know, by having the Soviet by, by having the Soviet bomb you know, a balance was maintained. I mean, it would have been far worse if the Soviets had had the bomb and the West, I would argue, and the West didn't. Um, but but you can also tell that Ursula was was also wrestling with this. I mean, there she was in the village of Great Rollwright, baking her scones and, and getting on very well with her neighbours. At the same time, she knew she was spying against Britain and was very defensive about that in later life. Now, in your previous books, you've written many times about successes of British military intelligence. How were they so unable to spot this Soviet spy in their midst? Well, that's been part of the fun of writing about this, is that I really am looking through the other end of the telescope at this story. You're absolutely right. I mean, the stories in the past, many of them that I've written about, are stories in which the West has kind of bamboozled the enemy. This is this is a catastrophic failure by British intelligence. I mean, Ursula... Well, it also introduces another forgotten character from history who is another woman, the only woman in the Soviet counterintelligence service, um, sorry, the British MI5 counterintelligence service, F section, who went by the unimprovable name of Millicent Baggett. Uh, And Millicent Baggett was a wonderful kind of formidable intelligence officer. She absolutely terrified the life out of most of her MI5 colleagues. She was tough as hell. And she had spotted Ursula as a security risk pretty much from the moment that Ursula landed um, and was forever badgering her male colleagues to get onto this, to kind of to, to start tracking Ursula in earnest. Ursula's disguise was that she was a woman. There are these actually really quite funny, in retrospect, notes in her MI5 files with these rather stodgy, slightly hopeless men saying, well, it obviously can't be Mrs. Burton. I mean, she's married. She's got... Three children, I think we can safely ignore her. Um, and of course, so so they really did up until the end. I mean, the crisis for Ursula, and I don't want to give away too much, came when Klaus Fuchs was finally rumbled and she knew rightly that MI5 was going to get onto her. And they did. They did. They came hunting her in earnest. And I will leave your 
listeners to find out what happened after that. But uh, they it took them a long time. Um, but they did finally they finally realised that this this housewife living in rural Oxfordshire was not quite the person that she seemed to be. Now Ursula ended her life in East Germany. So having spent many years spying on behalf of the communist world, she ended up living in it. Did did the reality match the vision she had of it? Again, Ursula's public pronouncements on this are kind of boilerplate communism. You know, she's, she's publicly, she would say it was absolutely marvellous and, you know, the, the Soviet socialist state that had been instituted in, in East Germany was, was perfect. The truth is she was spied on like everybody else. Um, the Stasi were watching her. They never quite trusted her because she'd been in the West. She was Jewish. There was an enormously sort of anti-Semitic uh, sort of feeling in, in East Germany during the 50s. So the truth is that Ursula was, I think, very disillusioned um, when she arrived back in Germany. It didn't take her long to sever her links with Soviet intelligence. They tried to keep her going. Um, she said no. And in fact, that makes, again, makes her unique. Soviet intelligence is a very hard club to leave once you've joined it. But she managed it. She just sort of walked away from it and rebuilt herself as someone completely different. I mean, that's the other extraordinary thing about Ursula is that every stage of her life, she becomes someone else. I mean, from Shanghai to Poland to Switzerland to Britain, she's a different person. And in East Germany, she became Ruth Wellner. She became a highly successful children's novelist. Um, she's, been, she's been described as the Enid Blyton of East Germany. And she wrote these ideologically tinged, I mean, they are, they are you know, they are communistic books, but they sold in their thousands and many, many more people. Well, I mean, the vast majority of people who knew about this character at all knew her as Ruth Werner novelist. They did not know her as Ursula Kaczynski spy. That only came out many, many years later. So again, she kind of reinvented herself. How aware was she of the darker side of Soviet communism? And did that shake her belief in what she was doing? Well, again, you know... Uh, this is, this is what makes her such an interesting character. Yes, you know, in the 1930s, in 1938 in Moscow when she was being trained, her friends, her colleagues, some of the people that she loved most were disappearing. I mean, the Stalinist purges were underway. Did she know about it? Yes, of course she knew about it. Did it shake her faith? Yes, it undoubtedly did to some extent. In later life, she would maintain that she didn't know the full extent of the horror. I think that's probably true. I think at the time... She was probably shielded from it. She didn't really know why these people were disappearing. Gossip was going around. Not gossip, I mean, sort of terror, terror gossip really was going around about what was happening to these people. Did She, she turned a kind of blind eye to it in the, in the 1930s. Much later on, uh, it, after Stalin's death, when the full horror of what had happened under, the, under Stalin began to emerge, she was rocked by it. I think it was, a, a, it was really the crisis of her life. And she never fully recovered from it. Um, in fact, she never really publicly addressed it. She remained a communist, she remained left-wing, but I think she was deeply disillusioned by what had happened. And then, of course, she witnessed the fall of the Berlin Wall. She, she was still alive when that happened. And although she gave a kind of rousing speech in East Germany saying, we will rebuild communism, and, and she did, in fairness, she still believed in those principles, she still believed in, 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 in socialism, but she knew and she would say this privately, she knew that the great story, the great project that she had devoted her life to had failed. And, and 
I think she looked back on her life and the very last words that she said really were, you know, I, I look back and for the first time in my life, I feel, I feel a disillusionment. I feel that it, that it didn't work. And having written about many spies throughout your career, how significant a spy was she? Not just in terms of the fact that she was a woman spy, but in terms of the results she achieved. She's, uh, yes, I mean, as a woman, she is unique. But to put that aside, spies often don't make a huge amount of difference to history. I mean, it sounds like an odd thing for somebody to say who has written so much about spies. But, but very often spies oil the wheels of traditional diplomacy. They provide a kind of underground current of confirmation or information. But do they change history? Very seldom. You know, frequently, you know, they make us a bit safer or they make us more unsafe if they provide false information. But very seldom, and Operation Mincemeat is a good example. Operation Mincemeat, the deception operation of the Second World War about surrounding the invasion of the city, that actually did materially influence the course of events. Oleg Gordievsky, who I wrote about before, I mean, he, the information he provided to British intelligence actually did change the course of history. And I would say Ursula is in that pantheon. I mean, her early life in, in, in communist China is not a story well known in the West, but actually in terms of what that did and how that maintained the communist underground, yes, it was absolutely crucial, particularly in Japanese-occupied Manchuria. So that's a kind of low level. Her, her work in Switzerland undoubtedly that the kind of information that she was pulling out of Nazi Germany was having a direct impact on Soviet policy. I mean, the, the, the Soviets changed what they were doing in the light of what their spies were producing. She wasn't the only one. There was, a, you know, there were others. But it's, it's really when we come to the atomic story that Ursula really does come into her own. Because her role as a kind of courier, as a kind of spy mistress, as somebody who kept Fuchs going for, for a long time, extracting these high... I mean, she was no scientist. She didn't know really what she, the, the, the true extent of what she was passing on. But the response from, from Soviet military intelligence headquarters was so enthusiastic and so desperate, it became pretty clear to her very quickly that this was gold dust that she was producing. And it did. It it. it it affected the course of the Cold War. It really did. I mean, the fact that the Soviets ended up with their own bomb, our history would be very, very different, I think, if that hadn't happened. And I'd be interested in your take also on the moral aspect of Ursula's story. She's undoubtedly a remarkable and brave woman, but how should we view someone who spied against her own country for one of the worst regimes of the 20th century? Well... I mean, you know, I'm, do we take a moral view of history? Is that is that what historians are here to do? I know that is that is very much a modern take on how we should see the past. That we should be wagging our fingers and saying bad, naughty. That was that was not a good thing. You know, that was a good thing. We'll we'll celebrate that. We'll. So you have to see history in context. It seems to me that from pulling down statues to you know to reassessing our relationship, you know, you you, you can't divorce the way people behave from the context that they're in. And we also tend to look back on history and try and establish a kind of template, a kind of shape to put it in. And most lives change over time. Yes, Ursula initially was the servant of a... Well, initially, in fact, it was a much purer engagement. I mean, she was there to try to battle 
fascism. She was a ferocious anti-Nazi operative. You know, very few of us would have stood up <laughs> and said, we don't think Ursula should be doing that. I mean, she was, you know, she was she was a proper died-in-the-wool anti-fascist campaigner. And that is true of most of the first half of her of her life. And she would say throughout, I mean, that her job was to fight this scourge of Nazism that was not only destroying her her beloved Germany, but 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 killing her family. So so you know, in that respect, we are on her side. And what makes her so interesting, I think, is that the Cold War pivots her. You know, that the, the world that the world pivots around her, if you like, and she does end up serving a brutal, philistine, cruel regime. And her realization of that in later life is very telling. Um, now, do we take a moral stand on that? Ursula never killed anybody. Ursula would never have been involved in, in, in anything like that. She never betrayed anybody. In some ways, she's a fairly pure soul. That we, looking back in history, do not ideologically agree with where she came from, that's, that's the perspective that we're lucky enough to have with history. But would you have wished to have been uh, on Ursula's side in Weimar, Germany in the 19th 20s, would you have wanted to oppose fascism or would you have been on the other side? I think we know morally which side of that argument we would have found ourselves on. So I think I think one needs to be careful with, with trying to fit her into an ideological template, if you like, that we have inherited. And, and as you say, her upbringing clearly had such a huge impact on her life and growing up with the shadow of Nazism, it, I suppose it is easier to sympathise with someone than serving a communist regime. Oh, I think entirely. I mean, I mean, it's funny. I mean, we look back on on Britain in the 1930s and we say, you know, God, these wicked communists who emerged and then betrayed their country in the Cambridge Five and so on. Well, actually, you know, with the Spanish Civil War raging and fascism on the march and, you know, Nazism, you know, clearly in the ascendant in Germany, I think many of us might have said, you know what, the only way to stop this is communism. It was a perfectly... Um, respectable ideological position to take in the 1930s is the only way to stop this, the only way to stop this horror is to go left and to go radically left. Um, She was not alone. Again, it's a part of history that because of the Cold War is slightly occluded from us. And I'm not saying that, you know, the Blunts and and the Philbys and the McLeans were in any way right. I mean, they stuck with this regime. You know, they stuck with Stalinism long after it became clear that the story that they'd been told and the story that they had espoused at the beginning was a was a was a lie. A lot of it, and and the same is true of Ursula. I mean, she also had to face up to the fact that the story she had she had told, the story she belonged to, was 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 not correct. I mean, I presume from reading the book, you never actually got to meet Ursula in real life. But if you had have done, what would you have liked to ask her? I wish I had met her. I, I would love to have met her. She was she was extraordinarily good fun. I mean, that's the other aspect of it. Most communists, sorry, this is a terrible generalisation, but, you know, dyed-in-the-wool communists can be a bit doctrinaire. They can be quite boring. Um, Ursula was anything but. She was just a complete live wire right into her 90s. I mean, hearing recordings of her, you know, she, she sort of lived life in this extraordinarily sort of joyful way. But I would love to have asked her. I would love to, in the freedom of a united Germany. I would love to have been able to say to Ursula, really, in 1938, when you were in Moscow, how much did you really know? And 
how what you know looking back because she was never completely open about her her disillusionment she couldn't be i mean you know she she sort of stuck to this story for so long i i would love to have tried to get i mean maybe one would have got nowhere i don't know she was such an adept kind of um intelligence agents you know they can run rings around most of us she probably would never have given one a straight answer but i would love to have seen the expression on her face i think um i'd love to have seen if one could find out just how deep that crisis went when it came that was ben mcintyre as mentioned earlier ben's book agent sonia lover mother soldier spy has just been published by viking And do search for his name on historyextra.com to find previous podcast interviews we've done with him over the years. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again tomorrow for another lecture from our History Weekend events.